0: As we begin to study the letter to the church at Pergamos, we'll also take a look at the historical background of the city of Satan. Mm. And I think we'll see something that cannot be found in the Bible, in the Word of God, something that has slipped into the practice and doctrines of even the modern churches. The question that perplexes many folks today is, why are there many different ideas about God? different ideas about the Bible, different ideas about the church and about heaven. Which church is right? How can we know that we, what we believe is correct? Are we sure we are right in what we teach? Now obviously the answer to these questions can be found in the Word of God. But there's a great deal that we can learn from history also. And so as we study both Scripture and historical background relating to Pergamus, and that's also translated to Pergamum. You may see that in some of the translations. We can discover one of the main sources of compromise and confusion within the church. Pergamos is described as the union of a pagan cathedral city, a university town, and a royal residence. When the book of Revelation was written, Pergamos had been Asia's capital city for almost 400 years and was considered the greatest city in Asia. The city was known as a cultural city, famous for its library, which contained 200,000 volumes. You'll notice that in the writing to Pergamos, the Lord refers to himself. He says there in verse 12, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That is the Lord. This reference is taken from John's vision. Back there in chapter 1, verse 16, when he first saw the Lord Jesus Christ, where the sword is in Christ's mouth, the sword is a symbol of judgment, and in both chapters, this sword is drawn, ready for instant work. Christ holds the sword as he delivers his diagnosis to the church at Pergamos. The Lord Jesus, Lord of all the earth, is ready to execute judgment upon them if they do not repent. And so Christ's diagnosis of this church is fourfold. He mentions three things that are good, and he mentions one thing that is bad. Remember, as we talked about at the very beginning, Pergamus is the, one of the churches that is part good and part bad. Unfortunately, the one thing that is bad is life-threatening. We find that Christ mentions the circumstances of their faith. He knows the environment in which their faith is lived out. He says, Pergamos is where you dwell and where Satan's throne is and where Satan lives. From a Christian standpoint, Pergamos was one of the worst of the seven cities. heathenism, idolatry... Paganism raided all over Asia Minor from this particular city. Alexander Hislop, a theologian, in his book entitled Two Babylons, gave much evidence to show that the center of satanic operation moved from Babylon to Pergamus after Babylon fell during the days of Belshazzar. The term Babylon is found some 290 times in Scripture, the term is is uh, interchangeable with Babel. <clears throat> it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter ten. It was here that the Tower of Babel was attempted, where they thought they could make stairways up to the to heaven, and they would all speak the same language. And the Lord came along and decided that none of them would communicate with each other. The city was started by King Nimrod. It was later built out by King Nebuchadnezzar. There was a rejection of the one true God. If you're wondering how this related to the book of Revelation, I don't know if you've ever read the entire book. But back there in chapter 17, which we're going to get to, you will find that chapter 17 deals with the whore of Babylon. Meanwhile, back at Permas, we know that the city was once one of the ancient wonders of the world. The magnificent altar of Zeus was located in Pergamos. Since it was situated high on the side of a mountain, the altar looked like a throne. And no doubt this is why some folks referred to that as Satan's throne. And we get the reference to that in verse 13. But never doubt that this <coughs> is all, is, it, the doubt that first of all, Christ knows all about what's going on in Pergamos. He knows all the circumstances surrounding where they live and what they're living with. He knew the circumstances of their faith. He realized that the church is inescapable in the midst of a sinful culture in the city of Satan. And he understands how difficult it is for these Christians to live for him while surrounded by such satanic influences. He knows the circumstances of their faith. He knows their living in sin city. Secondly, Christ reminds the church that he knows the conviction of their faith. He says that again in verse 13, that despite their evil surroundings, the church was holding to Christ's name. They were still orthodox and had not surrendered one single doctrine of faith. And finally, as part of Christ's diagnosis of the church at Pergamos, he looked at the courage of their faith. He said, you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Even though tempted to quit in the face of persecution, especially after one of their own was killed for his faith, the church at Pergamos refused to deny the faith. We know that Antipas was a disciple of John. He was made bishop of the church of Pergamus by John. When he refused to quit preaching Christ, he was placed on the fire pits where the sacrifices were consumed. And so after recognizing the circumstances of their faith, what they were having to live with, the conviction of their faith, the fact that they were, they were standing up to what was going on there, the courage of their faith Christ pronounces his fourth diagnosis to the church at Pergamos he says he knows the compromise of their faith and this diagnosis occupies the rest of the letter because it's of vital importance you see Satan was trying to destroy the church at Pergamos through compromise and although he was not able to destroy it by coming in roaring like a lion He was making great inroads as a deceiving servant. You get more flies with honey than you do uh, with a fly swatter. A group of compromising people had infiltrated the church fellowship, and Jesus hated their doctrines and their practices. And he says there in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat, sacrifice to, to eat things sacrificed to animals, to idols, and to, to commit fornication. This was the same compromise we read about in Ephesus. And we're going to see it again in, in Thyatira. That coupled with the deeds of the Nicolaitans, while the Ephesian church had hated these doctrines, they actually were being accepted by the church at Pergamos. The word Nicolaitan is derived from two words, which means to conquer the laity. As a class system began to develop between the clergy and the laity, the church at Pergamos was no longer one in Christ. We know the church laity system that we have today goes all the way back to the 3rd century. The doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaians sought to persuade Christians that there was nothing wrong with prudent conformity to the world's standards. And that's carried on a long ways. The church at Pergamus had forgotten that the Christian is called to be holy. Christians are to be different or separate from the world. And when holiness is neglected, the Christian and the church are in trouble. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 15 through 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And even back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, 11th chapter, uh, verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourself and you shall be holy, for I am holy. You want to know how the Lord feels about compromise in the life of a Christian? Well, you'll find that answer in Christ's command there in verse 16, where he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight you against you with the sword of my mouth. And along with this command, you will find two conditional promises in verse 17. First, to those who overcome or stand apart from the worldly cultures, they will receive something far better than all the world has to offer. Christ will provide a special hidden manner or heavenly food. This manner is the Lord's own word which has the power to sustain those who are overcomers. The second thing that he promises, he says those who live for Christ will also receive a white stone with a name on it. And while there are endless interpretations of what this means, we can know for certain that Christ has reserved something special for overcomers, in their personal relationship with Him. The white stone was what uh, back in ancient times was given after a trial and you were uh, acquitted or set free from whatever you were charged with, they gave you a white stone. If you were found guilty, they gave you a black stone. And so what Christ is saying here When I come and you've done what you're supposed to do, you'll be found not guilty and you will receive the white stone. Pergamos represents the period in church history when the church got married to the world. At the end of the Smyrna period of persecution in the 2nd and 3rd (coughs) centuries, Constantine, the first Christian emperor, came into power and bargained with Satan to join the church and make Christianity the religion of the state. The unholy alliance of the church and state resulted and heathenism was gradually Christianized. Christianity was forced on unwilling subjects with the use of the sword. It was either baptism or death. Pagan priests who had been paid by the emperor hurried to be baptized so that they could keep their pay. They turned their pagan temples into churches but continued to worship the same idols in the same way. The idols were given the names of Christian saints. Even the special days for honoring the guards were kept. Only the names were changed to suit the new Christian climate. The believers who were persecuted prior to Constantine now find themselves lauded by both political <coughs> and civil authorities. The rags they wore during persecution and their hideouts in the catacombs were traded for softer garments and more comfortable dwellings. And so the Pergamos stage of history came into being. And there are some lessons here to be learned <clears throat> and not just for Pergamus. We find there is a toleration which is treachery. There is a peace which issues in paralysis. There are times when the church must say no to those who ask communion with her. Amen. And while such standing aloof may produce ostracism and persecution, it will, re- it will still maintain power and influence. Amen. Folks, if the church of God in the cities of today stood apart from the, from the norms of this age and separated themselves from the materialistic philosophies of the schools, while bearing witness along to all the sufficiency of Christ and the perfection of salvation, then it would be to her that folks would look in the hour of their heartbreak and sorrow. The reason folks do not look to the church today is that she has destroyed her own influence by compromise church, and Pergamos had three good things about it and one bad thing. Basically, it destroyed her testimony. She thought she could marry the world and still maintain the integrity of her faith. Mm. Oh. then we come to what is characterized as the adulterous church. The church at Thyatira. A church that again seems to be healthy but once again tolerated immorality among the congregation. Remember this is one of the churches that is part good and part bad. <clears throat> we read that the church at Thyatira was growing in love people worked hard they worked faithfully but unfortunately the church was tolerating a satanic woman and had refused to censor her this study will show us how god dealt with this tolerance our tower was located about 40 miles from pergamos it was a busy trade center that bragged about the number of trade guilds that was occupied there it was a busy trade center that bragged about the number of of uh, people who were working there it was also a city that was proud of its sacrifices and its shallow ritualisms We will find the church in this city has been written the longest letter of the seven even though it was seemingly the least important the lord himself addresses himself as the son of god who has eyes like a flame of fire his feet like fine brass. We find that in verse 18 as we begin to look at the church at Thyatira. To the angel of the church at Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. The term son of man, which we see sometimes is usually a reference to Jesus' humanity. While the Son of God, which we see referenced here, draws attention to his deity. Here we just see the divine title is used intentionally to add to the solemn message which is about to be delivered. In his description, Christ's eyes are compared to a flame of fire. It's been said there is nothing more piercing than flaming fire. Everything yields and melts before it. It penetrates all things. It consumes every opposition. It sweeps down all obstructions. And it passes its way with invincible power. And this is what is described here as the penetrating fire in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to the church at tower. Christ presents himself as one who sees all and who searches the minds and hearts of men there in verse 23 he says and I will kill her children with death and all the, all they who know that speaking about Jezebel he continues and he says I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works the Lord's feet are pictured as fine brass brass is an alloy It looks like gold when it's adequately polished. It is a symbol of judgment. And so the Lord Jesus Christ appears before the church of Thyatira as the divine judge who sees all. In many ways, the service of Thyatira was better than that of the previous churches. Remember, we're talking about some churches that were good, some churches that were bad, some who had both. According to Christ's diagnosis of the church, the believers in Thyatira were laboring. They were loving. They were working. They were loyal. They were long suffering people. Not only were the people exhibiting these positive characteristics, but they were progressing and maturing in them as well, which we find back there in verse 19. I know your works love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are better than the first. They were progressing. They were were moving towards a better end. This was a laboring church. He says, I know your works. I know your service. In fact, the words appear twice in verse 19, which seems to add to a sense of emphasis there. And so this was indeed a working, laboring church. Here the word for service represents a spiritual ministry that goes beyond the functional. It is service offered with an expression of Christian loving kindness. This church at Thyatira was like the church in Thessaloniki. Their service was a labor of love. Looking at what Paul has to say there in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, We remember without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father Paul says we remember how you were serving there Thyatira was a loving church again verse 19 I know your works and I know your love Thyatira was also a match for the church in Ephesus in its record of energy and devotion but it had kept the warm glow of love that the Ephesus church had lost Thyatira was a loyal church it was a loving church and again he says, I know your works, I know your faith. The Greek word for faith is piston, suggesting the idea of fidelity and loyalty. The Christians in Thyatira were reliable, ministering in spite of resistance and criticism. They fulfilled the one requirement of a servant that stands above all the others, and that being faithfulness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, However, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And finally, Thyatira was also a long-suffering church. He says, I know your works. I know your patience. The word patience conveys ideas of staying power under adverse circumstances. The believers in this city maintain mental and emotional balance under extreme pressure. He says this church is a service church or a laboring church. They're a loving church. They're a church that is loyal or one that is faithful. And finally, he says they're patient or they're long-suffering. At the end of his diagnosis of the state of this church, when Christ adds perhaps the most important truth about the assembly, and that is their latter work exceeded their first. They were moving in the right direction. So finally, a perfect church. Not so fast there. We know that they're one of the good churches, but they're also one of the bad ones. And with His penetrating eyes of fire, Christ revealed a cancer that was within this beautiful church. There in verse 20 through verse 23, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that. with his penetrating eyes of fire Christ revealed this cancer that was in this this beautiful church and nevertheless he says I have this against you this cancer, this immorality seemingly a common theme in all of these churches that we've looked at according to John R. W. Stott or English Anglican cleric and theologian. I did get the privilege to hear him preach one time. He said, if the devil cannot conquer the church by application of political pressure or the propagation of intellectual heresy, he will try the insurrection, insinuation of moral evil. He says, this was the dragon's strategy in Thyra in Tower if you think back to the church of Ephesus you will remember a body that could not bear false apostles but the church had no love here at Thyatira has love but she tolerated an evil false prophecies referred to as Jezebel Thyatira had everything but holiness her people had lost sight of the purpose for which Christ had chosen them that they should be holy and blameless before him so who was this woman this Jezebel. Historically, we know that she was the wife of Ahab, one of Israel's most wicked kings. She was heavily involved in the worship of Astarte, or Ashtaroth, in which sexual immorality was a part of worship. Ashtar was an ancient Near Eastern goddess. In various cultures, Ashtar was connected with a combination of various spheres, including war, sexuality, royal power, beauty, healing, and hunting. We're told she was probably not a fertility goddess. I don't know how she missed that one. (laughs) But Jezebel supported over 800 prophets in her, her immoral cult. And she killed all the prophets of Jehovah that she could find. It's been said that she had a devastating effect on the nation of Israel. She swept men off their feet and all her wickedness was so attractive. They simply forgot the simplicities of David. They forsook the austerities of Moses. Their way of life was changed before they were aware of it. And they began to dance to her music and fall down to her gods. And so without question, Jezebel was the epitome of subtle corruption and a symbol of immorality and idolatry. Although she had been dead for a thousand years at the time of this letter, Jezebel's spirit had been revived in a prophecy who had become prominent in the city of Tower Claiming to be a prophecy of God, this new Jezebel was causing Christians in Tower to indulge in immoral practices. This Jezebel followers prided themselves in the deep things which they had managed, which they had master they had come to believe that they possessed esoteric information that the average christian didn't know about well the lord's message to this church is presented in three packages one part of their letter is addressed to the cult of jezebel verses 21 through 23 the second part is addressed to the pure remnant of christians in the church which we find in verses 24 and 25 And the third section is for overcomers who are in 26 through 29. The first part, the message of the cult, which we find there in verse 21 through 23, where he says that he gave her time to repent. She did not. And that what he was going to do with her and that he was going to kill the children and that all the churches knew what he was going to do. But then he addresses uh, the pure remnant of christians there in verses 24 and 25 he says but to you i say and to the rest in Thy tower that as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of satan as they call them i will put on you no other burden but hold fast what you have till i come and then the third section was for the true overcomers in verse 26 through 29 And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule without rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." As we said, the first part of the message is to the cult. He says, Jezebel has been given a chance to repent. She has never responded. Consequently, the Lord promised that she will be cast into a bed of affliction along with all those who have participated in evil with her. Her bed will be transformed into a bed of pain. The Lord even further pronounced judgment when He says, I will kill her children. Then He says there in verse 23, it's thought that the reference here is to the actual illegitimate children of Jezebel's promiscuity. It is more probable, however, that this points to the spiritual children in this cultic family. And then from Jezebel, the Lord turns to addressing the Christians. Apparently not everyone in the church at Tower had become a part of this evil cult. To the church, to the group of Christians, Christ gives clear instructions. He tells them that they are not to carry on uh, no other burdens rather, uh, greater than the commandments which He's already given to them. They were not to add to God's Word in order to overcompensate for the immoral laxity around them. Rather, they were to hold fast to what they already had, which we see there in verse 25. The Christians were not to play Pharisees. The Holy Scriptures are themselves a yardstick by which to measure and to test. They are an adequate guide and sufficient rule, both of faith and of life. One should hold fast to them and lay upon ourselves no other burdens than is given to them. And then he addressed the overcomers, or the conquerors. As in all the other letters, Christ closes the message of the church in Thyatira, with a challenge to those who are the overcomers. <coughs> he says to those who keeps his works unto the end, the Lord promises to give the power to rule. They will eventually judge the nations, which we see there in 26. They will also rule with a rod of iron. The word rule here in, <clears throat> in the Greek means to shepherd. As those who execute judgment, those faithful conquerors will shepherd the nations as well as administer mercy to those who are the sheep during the millennial reign. Christ also gave promise of the morning star. Verse 28, to overcome us, He said, He would would give to them the morning star. Since Jesus is the bright and morning star, and we'll read about that when we get to chapter 22, verse 16, this promise to the faithful is a promise of His presence. It apparently refers to Christ as returning one who will rapture the church before the dark hours preceding the millennial kingdom. It's encouraging to know that a remnant of this type of church will rule someday with Christ in His earthly kingdom. Hope is always present in the midst of worse circumstances. Next week we're going to look at the letter to the church at Sardis, which was a bad church. We're looking at the letter to Philadelphia, which was a good church. And then I think if y'all listen fast enough, we can do Laodicea, which was another fast bad church. So Philadelphia is sort of sandwiched in between uh, these two bad churches, and we find that Philadelphia was the epitome of what Christ was looking for when he addressed these churches Uh, we're told that this letter Thyatira was probably the longest letter Uh, in my study I think I found that what they had to say about Sardis is is much longer than what's in Thyatira but we'll take a look at that next week and see if we can get through all three of those letters and then get into the rest of what uh, the book of Revelation gives to us. I didn't want to get started on Sardis tonight because there's no way I could get finished and I would leave you hanging in the middle.